Welcome to Between Two Chairs, Demystifying Commercial Real Estate, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and trends on the South Florida commercial real estate market with your hosts, Fernando Arencibia Jr. and Jennifer Woolman. In each episode, we dive into the world of commercial real estate and break down complex concepts to make them accessible for everyone. Whether you're a real estate professional, a curious investor, or just interested in the South Florida market in general, Between Two Chairs is the podcast for you. So pull up a chair and join us. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Between Two Chairs. My name is Fernando Arencivia, and with me, as always, is the incomparable Jennifer Woman. Jennifer, I'll say hi. Hi. <laughs> we have a very uh, special um, show today. We're going to have uh, um, really a conversation about multifamily and investing in uh, through a holistic approach and investing in neighborhoods. And we are extremely uh, excited to have with us today um, uh, a person that you know I met in this business, uh, working with him in the acquisition side of uh, a lot of the properties that he owns and manages, uh, who has become uh, a great, great personal friend, Mr. Nate Korn, who is the principal of IMAME Capital. And uh, if I may, I'm gonna just read a little bit about IMAME Capital. IMAME Capital has been at the forefront of community-focused real estate investments since their founding in 2010. Their journey, their journey began with a singular vision to transform underdeveloped neighborhoods into thriving communities by strategically investing in apartments and other properties. Over the years, their dedication to this vision has allowed them to evolve into a vertically integrated housing provider, uniquely positioned to make a lasting impact. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Nate Korn. Hey, Nate. Good morning, buddy. How are you today? Good to hear. Good to hear. So, Nate, um, I, I'm wondering if you could tell people a little bit about your journey, a little bit about the creation of IMM Capital, and just kind of introduce us to yourself and, and your company. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um like you mentioned, uh, I founded the company in 2010. Uh, some of our first uh, acquisitions were right after the great recession or crash, however you wanna classify it. Um, uh, I will say that a lot of uh, how we started, what could have been um, by chance in sense of good timing to enter the real estate market. Um, and uh, I would say in terms of real estate specifically, uh, it, I might naturally migrated to real estate just because of my finance background and uh, me being able to, I guess, understand simplistically at first some basic mathematics and that related to real estate, you know, income minus expenses equals uh, net operating income. So 
that's really all I knew. I didn't come from a real estate family, so I credit just my, uh, you know, my entrepreneurism and also just the opportunity that was presented after uh, the last downturn. I'm, I'm curious, did you form the company to take advantage specifically of opportunities that you either saw or thought were coming available, or did you already kind of have this idea in mind before you, before the crisis? No, actually, I originally founded the company thinking that I was going to move forward more in the conventional securities business. Um, you know, stocks or bonds. I was working for an asset manager in a different city before moving to Miami. And that was kind of the route. My background's in finance. So uh, I really just fell into real estate when I moved to Miami, started networking, seeing certain opportunities, finding an interest in those opportunities, and then executing because of the unique uh, moment in time, I guess, that uh, transpired because of the Great Recession, being in Miami, having very opportunistic pricing. So, yeah, no, it was it was kind of by chance. And then I was interested in what I was doing. I was still finding a lot of opportunities, saw the potential of Miami over, you know, the longer term and really kind of pivoted into real estate hard. So take us back a little bit. So you're born and raised in St. Louis, right? And how did you make your way to Miami? Why did you choose Miami? Or, or why did Miami chose you, I think? So I was, I was familiar with Miami to a certain extent. My older sister uh, graduated from the University of Miami. So I had visited her. I was semi-familiar with Coconut Grove and the Gables and you know, at that time, early 2000s, Brickell wasn't much of a hot spot. It was just pretty much Miami Beach and the areas around the University of Miami. So uh, in some sense, I was slightly familiar with the city. Maybe that's what attracted me subconsciously to come back. But I was living and working in Naples, Florida at an investment bank and just like I mentioned, because, you know, 2007, 2008 came, I was fig early in my career, just out of college, figuring out what a path I wanted to take. You know, Miami's a more youthful city. It's a larger city. Naples is primarily, you know, banks and restaurants. So I migrated over here, most likely, uh, while I wasn't probably consciously thinking about it at the time, just because it, it was going to offer more opportunity and job employment opportunities. When I first met you, you were already working in um, in Little Havana. So take us a little bit through that, uh, the process of deciding that this was a good, you know, strategic place to invest. What did you see in Little Havana um, that you found to be a place worthy of, of investment? So my first deal was on uh, the city of Miami Beach, the northern side, uh, that what kind of was the catalyst for me entering the real estate multifamily business through that opportunity and just getting involved in the neighborhood community. I sat on a city of Miami Beach board because I was I was uh, living on the beach at the time and networking, talking to people. And I think I got exposed through a business colleague about 
the neighborhood, Little Havana specifically. At first, I started, you know, touring it, taking a look around, doing some research on it. And basically, a lot of the boxes checked in terms of uh, real estate fundamentals, uh, location, opportunity set in terms of buildings. There was a lot of apartment buildings here. It is it, it geographically situated opportunistically within the overall city with employment centers around for people uh, to attract people to want to live there. But really, again, I think it really came down to price at the time. It was a very unique opportunity in the real estate market, you know, coming out of, you know, an economic downturn where everyone had been getting a lot of free leverage, uh, no money down rates, which pushed people or investors to buy and live or buy and rent out, which was kind of beat, beat up the multifamily market. And then after the crash, people needed places to live because a lot of, you know, a lot of people got hurt or lost housing. And that was really the catalyst. Low prices, good geography in a growing city that attracted to me. Um, and then a lot of multifamily buildings to to choose from. So what has your experience been like? You've been at this now for quite a while. How have you scaled your business going from, you know, maybe, I don't know, your first one was how many units? Do you have a specific target number of units that you focus on? And how has that changed since you started? So most, most of the, when I started, you know, I was uh, slim with capital, slim uh, network Rolodex. So I started kind of small or at least from, you know, a purchase price standpoint. My first deal was a fractured condo a deal in Miami Beach that I got. I purchased from the, the, the quote unquote developer who couldn't sell the units anymore. So he wanted to get out and it was a very opportunistic, you know, opportunity for me, very low basis, let's just say that worked out. There was really no financing at the time, especially someone who was new to the real estate world and had no track record. So it was primarily financed all cash. I think the bank actually, I was a hundred thousand dollars short on a $500,000 acquisition for 13 units um, in North Beach and the bank to lend me the extra 100,000 basically made me put 400,000 of the capital that I raised in a CD and then lent me the money <laughs> off the CD. Very, very, you know, that rarely happens, but it just kind of speaks to where we were in the economic cycle where banks were really pulling back hard. They had no faith in in real estate, they had no faith in Miami, um, but I got the deal done because it, it was just, the price was just crazy. It was a block from the beach. In any case, that was really the catalyst for my real estate career. I started, you know, scooping up smaller multifamily buildings, five units and up. There's a lot of similar product type in Little Havana uh, in terms of construction type, you know, I was looking for buildings that, you know, not wood frame, more concrete, CBS block, poured roof, concrete roofs, poured slabs, just from a, 
in a, a mitigation. Again, I was early in my career. I didn't know everything that I know now about the construction aspect, the ins and outs of property management. So luckily I chose that direction and just kind of went out hunting for with Fernando, of course. We uh, implemented certain strategies, working geographic specific locations in specific neighborhoods. Um, you know, Miami is a very diverse place and especially in an area like Little Havana, you can go from one street to the next and it can be completely different and unique with different product type from age, uh, construction type, unit mix. So there was a lot to learn, a lot to absorb. And then also just from a marketing acquisition standpoint, a lot of no's, a lot of offers. And luckily we were able to generate enough business to kind of keep growing. So we, we, you know, we bought, tried to buy as much as we can, 12, 15 buildings within a two, three, four year period. Um, you know, we assembled over like a hundred units, very concentrated. And yeah, that's, that's really how I got, I got the ball rolling. Now, uh, obviously the market was, has changed over the last at 12 years, it, prices obviously have risen. Rental rates have come up as well. So I have not been as active of late, but still kind of finding deals in my neighborhood, that opportunistic deals, things that had more hair where I think I could maximize the returns for investors, but also conservatively leverage the asset um, with, you know, some banking relationships to increase, you know, returns on equity, but also just be able to hold for the longer term and have time for the, the deal to work out. But Nate, once you, once you go through the acquisition, right, you have to now uh, begin the, the process of managing the buildings, right? And, and especially when you're acquiring um, and adding so many units in a very short period of time. So talk about that for, for those that are, that are thinking of investing or scaling, right, that investment that, you know, in, in, in essence, you became a property management company, right? And so tell me a lot about, you know, the difficulties of that and what, what you learned along the way. Oh, wow. A lot to learn. I developed a saying after being in uh, property management after a while is, especially in the multifamily where you're dealing with a lot of tenants and, and these are their, their homes. And, it, you know, I'm proud to be able to, you know, make a lot of contacts and, you know, tenant relationships. Um, you know, the best part of being in real estate and property management is the people. But the worst part about being in property management is also the people. So, you know, it's a, it's very it's very hard if you're not organized, if you're not a problem solver, if you're uh, emotionally unstable because you know there's a lot of ins and there's a lot of ins and out, a lot of different personalities. A lot of times, you know, I we, I've worked through you know property manager assistants and property managers and. You know, it's easy to burn out in the business because we have no tip jar in our office. No one's coming in, dropping off some cash for managing their building <laughs> exceptionally. Most of our calls are complaints, let's be honest, you know, and very rarely you get a thank you, even though, you know, some of the tenants, you know, do extend that that hand. It, I'm not complaining. It's, it's just intrinsic to the business. 
but yeah, the big learning curve. I learned early on when, you know, my first buildings, I was pretty much doing everything myself. I had my uh, cell phone. Um, we called it the hot potato. And I remember just leaving it off some days and then turning it on after hours at five and just writing a list of all the calls that I would receive because I was, you know, I was buying buildings that had problems and we were there to solve those problems and stabilize the assets. So that's the more tangible rewarding aspect of it, where you go from such a, a messy place into a kind of a stabilized place, you know, as I got more organized and process oriented, built my team, you know, I passed on the hot potato to like an assistant and then a leasing uh, person and a full-time handyman over time and um, numerous vendor relationships that we've developed over the last 10 years have really made the, the management more efficient. But yeah, there's a deep learning curve um, uh, in terms of understanding, you know, plumbing, electrical, roofing, ACs, process uh, costs that, you know, you're not familiar with, terms you're not familiar with, but really just having a can-do attitude and getting and getting it done, not, not you know, no, not, not making any excuses. There's really only one way, and that's, uh, you know, getting the work order complete at a, you know, a, a, a cost and a timeliness that is satisfactory, you know, to maintain tenants and so forth. So yeah, we built out our property management team. The reason why I did that internally was again, because I was new and cash flow is important. And it was a way for the business to kind of keep the lights on while I went out and worked on non-revenue generating acquisitions, reaching out to cl uh, potential clients or investors giving them pitch on why I'm excited about the neighborhood, why I'm excited about Miami, why multifamily specifically. So I was juggling a lot of balls at first, you know, Nando, you know this because we were just pounding the pavement every day talking about how the window is going to close, the window is going to close. And so at least we we're, you know, smart enough or in the moment enough to realize that this was a unique you know, time. And I'm lucky that we worked so hard because it was really the catalyst for uh, now scaling up, doing larger projects, buying buildings with more units, uh, looking at d different development, smaller scale development deals, and then just the network that you develop being in the game and being productive. And, you know, you own one building, uh, you get some broker calls. If you own 10 buildings, you get a lot more broker calls. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the snowball kind of rolls over time. And we were, you know, I was, I was working hard. Oftentimes, like I remember just, you know, my girlfriend at the time, you know, telling me to turn the computer off at like 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. I'm like, you don't understand. Like, the hot potato has like 30 more messages that I got to go through. But, you know, I look at that as, as, uh, as a blessing because I really, I really wanted to do a good job. Obviously I didn't want to lose money for my investors. I wanted the, 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 the tenants to, to have an appropriate and livable situation. And I just liked learning, you know, I kind of got that attitude as well. So I'm lucky, uh, you know, if I didn't know something, I would spend time researching it and just just kind of figuring it out. 
So that's kind of like the beginning of it all. How did you raise the capital? You said you had investors. How did you get your first investors? So most of it was friends and family initially. And I made a good contact out of St. Louis that runs an investment firm. For some reason, he found confidence in me. And again, I think uh, it wasn't just me that realized that it was kind of an opportunistic moment in time after the great crash and, you know, the financials or the underwriting kind of dictated it. So they were more willing to invest in an up and coming asset manager like myself. So I was lucky to secure a significant amount of capital from a quote unquote, I'll call it a partnership out of St. Louis that you know manages client assets that um, have a lot more money than me a lot more assets under management but they're they're in the more of the securities um, stock portfolio but because of his network um, that really helped me raise a significant amount of capital equity capital that then i went out and leveraged through some local banks which definitely helped me buy more buildings at uh, conservative financing terms. When I was getting started, the banks would look at me and my personal financial statement and basically, you know, snicker, but I could only secure 50% loan to value at, you know, all time low acquisition prices. So again, it's it's just all part of the, the game. You, you, when you, you know, bankers can't be choosers. So I, would, I took the 50%, you know, now I am in a different place, so it's more of reconciling how much leverage you want to put on an asset to kind of be conservative with it. But yeah, so I would say initial equity contacts for family or my own network and bank financing really helped me uh, put these deals together. Well, if I may, I'm going to add a couple things here because I think it's important for people to understand because, uh, of course, I think both you and I look back in those days very fondly. But, you know, I think that what the investors saw in Nate and IMAM Capital was the fact that, you know, there's this term that gets thrown around about boots on the ground, right? But we were really boots on the ground. We were in Little Havana every single day of the week. And, you know, we engaged with community leaders and we got to see the fabric and those that were also investing and other developers and and other players in the space and what they were talking about were the same issues that we were seeing there was this um you know merchant alliance for little havana that was created and there was there were so many iterations of that connectivity with the community and really understanding the market so when a group from st louis is coming down to visit nate they're looking at his knowledge of the market number one number two uh the infrastructure that he was building to be able to manage and scale and how important that was in in, in the raising of, of the capital and always, you know, the mentality for everybody in the team, including myself as, as the, as the broker, as the independent broker was that, you know, we're, we're here to make sure that the acquisition makes sense so that we can uh, provide the returns to the investors that the investors are looking for. And that, you know, we were always looking for the opportunity to uh, far above exceed the expectations of, of, of the investor. And when you have that mindset, then, you you know, um, you're able to raise funds, you're able to really execute. But I think it's that boots on the ground mentality that, that really has served, you know, I mean, capital well. So I'm smiling here because I can't imagine what investors from St. Louis thought 
of Little Havana when they first came down. I mean, <laughs> did you see roosters running across the roads and the chicken? Like what? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's the that's the biggest uh, disconnect, I think. Um, you know, it's certain investors, new entrants into the real estate market. Uh, you know, whether it's naivete or mis misalignment of understanding. You know, when usually when you're in these, you know, areas that are kind of rough around the edges that offer the most upside opportunity, it's not going to be nice and clean and uh, shiny and brand new, it, you know, intrinsically, you know, it's not just sitting back, collecting rent checks and getting rich. There's a, you know, there's a lot to real estate that, that, you know, is well beyond just that revenue, um, especially on the multifamily side. So yeah, my sir, you know, I took some tours around, and it there was many comments of, oh, I can't bring all of our partners to this neighborhood; they will just not understand it, right? You know, these are uh, some investors who obviously are successful in their own right, um, have little on the ground experience managing or even owning real estate, but they might, they might've owned some REITs in their investment career, not to say it in a negative way, just, just, it just that misalignment. It's a human nature aspect. I think that oftentimes we see the world through our own eyes and not through other people's eyes or their own ex other experiences. So I think that contributed to some of the disconnects like, Oh, you know, why, why, you know, this, this, this looks, you know, beat up, right? Um, I would never live here. It's like, well, you know, the product isn't for you <laughs> to live in or, so I think that that was a, a shocker, but it also added a, a nice cultural a difference, right? With roosters on the ground, um, <laughs> different types of product type in a more urban environment. And you kind of learn to, uh, you know, not see that stuff. Obviously there's plenty of work to still be done and um, to clean up, you know, uh, little things and, and operationally that the city can, you know, improve on. But yeah, it was an eye opener for, for certain people. Yeah. Ironically, that's also what gives Little Havana so much of its charm, right? The Domino Park, the little ventanitas and the lines of people standing outside and kind of the yeah. crowded sidewalks and the chickens and the roosters <laughs> walking Definitely. by. And, and by the way, those obviously chickens and roosters are not limited to uh, Little yeah. Havana. We have Correct. them at our... Um, federal courthouse as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's Miami for you. Yes. So what what were what was one of the biggest mistakes or underestimations that you made at the very beginning that would have saved you a lot of time or money if you had known about it earlier? I just I think it was the opportunity cost. Uh, I think that looking back I didn't think how far or long the market could run in terms of um, pricing or how how beaten up the market really was. You know, when you're when you're in the moment, you know, running running numbers. I was very conservative, obviously, because I was new and you know, I, I was very honed in on the downside and losing capital. Um, 
I probably would have just bought everything Nando talked to me, you know, and not, <laughs> I mean, within, with, you know, I wouldn't say ever anything or everything, but within the unique strategy that we were running where the, the boxes were checking, you know, I was apprehensive of paying, you know, 30, 40 K more for buildings that, you know, now it looks like nothing, uh, 10 years later, I think that the opportunity cost, that's a great, that's a really great question. I think about that a lot, you know, no one can predict the future, but me kind of being maybe too, a little too conservative or, um, you know, obviously funds were equity funds were also not plentiful in the sense that I, I could just do whatever I wanted. But um, I do think that was the biggest um, opportunity cost error is that just I could have we could have man, we could have bought like four or five, six more buildings, tried to push the bank a little bit more um, to finance. And it would have just it, it would have just worked. It, it, it would have just worked like looking back. I had I didn't know how low we were. And then how long the mar you know, this bull market, this multifamily need, the affordability issue has continued to get worse and worse. And, you know, obviously I couldn't have predicted the success of Miami over the last 14 years, but you know, all these catalysts kind of just work out if the price the price is right. And that's really what I've learned, um, price being the most important factor. And when you got it, it doesn't come along, along very often. You just gotta, you gotta capitalize. Smaller things, just knowing which vendors to kind of keep a closer eye on, not having that Rolodex of extensive plumbers or electricians or painters, you know, you're always trying to keep the units occupied. And so, you know, obviously when you don't have as many options or the network at first, you have to, you have to trust a little bit more. And, you know, maybe my pricing wasn't as beneficial as it could have been. But again, this is, is this is chump change in, in comparison to um, leaving like, you know, buildings that were trading at like 400,000 that are now trading at, you know, one and a half million um, on the, on the table, for example. And um, what do you look for when you evaluate your particular purchase, now, like nowadays? Before it was, I know it's always price, but before in a, in a market that, as you pointed out, was a rare market and a rare opportunity, what do you look for in evaluating deals today? Uh, similar fundamentals, right? I look at what the what the asset can generate, right? You know, based on the number of units and the unit type, where the rents are currently. You know, I'm, I'm an as-is investor. You know, if they're undervalued, if they're overvalued, if they're right at market, because really, you know, I try to find deals that have a little meat on the bone or you can add some value to, right? And then overall, what's the condition of the building? What are large CapEx items that may or may not need to be completed in the short term, midterm, long term, just to kind of understand, you know, a cash flow scenario. And then of course, financing rates, right? Um, what, what you can get 
you know, conservatively finance 60, 65% loan to value, how that affects cash flow and, you know, costs for the most part. Is it in the flood zone? Is it not in the flood zone? Little things that can affect your free cash flow or the ability to reinvest in your property to upgrade it. So I think the fundamentals haven't changed. The uh, pricing and interest rates definitely have changed. And then of course, uh, insurance has gone up tremendously. Anytime the market does well, there's usually a lag in terms of how the tax man appraises your property. So these are all real items that are evolving all the time that you gotta keep your fingers on the pulse of because it definitely does affect the you know the long-term viability the beautiful thing about real estate is that you know if it's cash flowing and you're attentive and you're managing it correctly time is on your side and that's what you know again being a conservative personality type I mean I, I take risk within a certain um, definitely take risk in, in a certain regard but in terms of you know capital structure, and um, you know financing terms and such i'm not an adjustable rate type of investor the more predictability and just you know just work hard answer the phone chop logs every day and then real estate tends to to work over time right especially in markets that you know like miami we just I, we just got lucky that it's experienced so much growth and success and attention over the last 15 years yeah you know, Nate, as Jennifer mentioned, I've told a lot of stories from our last 14 years. For example, one of the stories that we shared was when we were looking at the 18-unit apartment building in North Beach, we had to make the deal happen right before the end of the year. We had to close in, you know, I think the last week of December. You know, you call me and you told me, Fernando, I don't think the, the deal is going to work. You know, it's, you know, now looking back, you're like, wow, $100,000 a door. I would take that any day <laughs> right now. But at the time, you know, it was, a, it was a big acquisition. And I remember that uh, because again, boots on the ground matters because we had gone to visit that hotel a couple doors down and then you reevaluated, well, if I buy it and I convert it <laughs> into, into a, uh, you know, into a hotel, then this, this really makes sense. I could add 18 units. And I remember you calling me back. It's like, oh, I ran the numbers. The numbers are, are incredible. Inevitably, we didn't, you didn't even have to do any conversion. You know, I've shared, you know, quite a few of those stories. I remember you mentioned about how I, at first you couldn't get 50% financing on a $360,000 acquisition. But uh, I remember on that deal, you calling me, I'll never forget this because I was in my youngest daughter had a ballet recital. And right before I'm walking into the ballet recital, you know, he's sending me a picture and he's signing the loan documents to acquire the property. And he goes, I just signed the loan for a million dollars. And so it was, you know, just like the, the little parts that we've been celebrating all throughout. But I do want to ask you this question because we have a, a great uh, friend of ours who's an investor in Austin, Texas. Her name is Delia Becker. And she, you know, has mentioned about this idea of investing on the edge of scary, right? So I don't know if you remember when we when we went to visit the Caracol Apartments. Yeah. There were three buildings oh, yeah. and they were being sold all together. So if I if you don't mind and take you through the story. So we go through the three buildings. There is a 
let's say a, a, a lady of ill repute in the you know at the front entrance uh looking she's an entrepreneur looking looking for work um <laughs> we're touring the site we finally get to the back uh property and there's like four police officers that are there and they're walking into one of the units and they walk out and you know we're kind of in the area we're seeing we're we're touring the site we're we're doing, we're doing the inspection i think yeah. we we're doing the it was just during the the inspection. Was that the inspection? That's right. Yes, we were it was doing the, the property inspection. inspection. It was unit one in the 936 <laughs> at Southwest right. 4th Street property. You know, this Street is what trauma is, does to you people. You remember and, every single detail. And the cops were parked right in front of on the street and they were rolling their windows down and they were looking at us like with funny googly eyes. I remember. And obviously, you know, my inquisitive mind, I go over there and say hello and ask him what's going on and you can take the story over from here <laughs> i mean he just flat out say this is ground zero for you know for drug dealing in little havana you know and so the question i have for you is why do things like that don't scare you off like you were you, you were, you were yeah like you period. were in you were inspection period you you know and the question for me is you know where does that come from for you because you you've always been very even keeled um in the face of that uh you know of things that most people would question you know i, I think a lot of investors would have said after that day uh you know i'm getting out of this you know i, I don't i don't want to deal with this uh, i just i think it yeah uh, you know it I was, I was, you know, younger. Yeah, I, was I was ambitious. He was young. He was out <laughs> but, of, he was recently But still, school. like, I mean, again, knowing, but th this is, this is true. Yeah, this is true. It, it's all, it's a, it's just a function of will it kill you in terms of will, will it affect your like capital? Are you, you know, a, one of our, our, our financial quote unquote mentors, we don't know him personally, Nando, but you know, Howard Marks always says, there's no, there's no deal bad, bad enough that the price won't reconcile. And there's no deal that's good enough that if you overpay for it, it's going to make you money. So I kind of keep that in perspective and I try to understand is, is this at, at opportunistic enough where the price kind of solves the equation. And even if I, even if it did, you know, I think that tenant ended up getting shot it, like a couple months later. Yeah. That, you know, the, the, the wife told us because of his illicit activities, you know, it worked out because they, they were probably, I think they were getting evicted by the current owners at the time anyway. Um, but it, these things are controllable in my view, because, what I did understand about that deal was those were foreign owners who probably outsourced management. They didn't have their fingers on the pulse. Their, their tenant acquisition process probably wasn't that great where they were running background checks, calling employers. You know, these are things that are solvable. And if I can have control over them, I, I will, I will, and I will do a good job at it. So I think understanding those variables um, and then really realizing, hey, is this completely out of my hands or do I have a fighting chance at, you know, fixing them over time? And I'll take, I'll, I'll do the hard work all day long because there's light at the end, end of that tunnel. 
So, you know, that's why, you know, you initially asked me, you know, the evolution of the property management. That's why we don't outsource um, our property management because there's no vested interest. I mean, let's be real. Some, some property managers do better than others, but it's, it's intrinsically a very hard business um, for the variables that I said earlier. There's a lot of burnout. You know, like I said, no one's coming in, dropping off tips at your tip jar for doing an excellent job. They're calling you about complaints. So um, it was very important for me to set up these processes and mitigate any risk. You know, what's the biggest risk? Like get, finding a, an incorrect tenant that doesn't allow align with your values um, or have a background that is, you know, uh, suspect, right? So we can mitigate that by doing a little bit more research or or a call, making a couple more calls. And over time, you know, you're not going to get it right every time, but over time, you know, your processes get better. You know, you're waking up every day, chopping logs, turning the screw a little bit, making learning from your mistakes. And, you know, over 10 years, you arrive at a place and you're like, oh, my gosh, how did how did I get here? By just being reasonable, in my view. So I that I think it's the opportunity, the you know, the price matters, the opportunity matters. I specifically remember those owners or Colombians that bought those assets for, you know, way over market in 2006, had it had it financed with a private loan. So they they. They wanted to get out. They had owned it for seven years, probably not making any money. Um, yet, did it scare me to see cops? Would I prefer seeing cops in front of my building during an inspection period? I probably wouldn't prefer that, but it is what it is, and I'm glad I did the deal because it, you know, we, you know, it it made a lot of sense financially, and the building was sound, concrete block. Uh, three properties right next to each other. So there's that economies of scale from a, from a leasing and a management standpoint. Um, so all those box made it, you know, were there more pros than cons? Yes. And that's, that's why we, that's why we move forward. If, if I may, I just want to say two things about that. Number one, when, when we close that deal, uh, Nate shows up the next day and all the washers and dryers were taken away because the husband of the owner thought that, well, that doesn't come with the building. We'll just take it with us. So you remember that? Uh, I do remember that. I do remember that. <laughs> Number two, I will say that one, one of the things that um, I think you would agree is one of the things that we love about Little Havana is that the great majority of people who live, work in Little Havana are incredibly hardworking uh, people. You know, it's surrounded by major centers of employment. We always thought that was, you know, um, at the heart of the matter, a very important aspect of it, uh, great modes of transportation to go to and from work. And, you know, the reality is that the great majority of tenants work extremely hard. They provide for their families. There is a great and strong tenant base of hardworking people in Little Havana. And they have a strong, strong sense of community, right? It's a it's a great community. It's Absolutely, super yeah. um, interactive, and yeah. people get involved. And so I'm I'm curious, um, just because of some of the things that you mentioned, and they said, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, rents are coming down, especially in Miami. Um, there's more inventory coming on the market, but there was a huge rush during the pandemic where a lot of people purchased multi 
family at four caps, right? We were going, how, how do you, how do you buy real estate at a four cap and make it work? Um, even when interest rates were, were lower, right? So I'm, I'm curious, are you seeing similar opportunities, maybe not to the price extent? Cause I don't think that we're going to be discounted anywhere near as much as the, the great financial crisis, but We've been hearing a lot about different loans coming due because of when people bought and the tight financial um, picture that we're in right now. Are you seeing any opportunities now or do you think you're, they're coming down the pipe? I've, I've, there's always opportunities, just how many opportunities they are. Um, I, I'm, I'm seeing still a dislocation between like the bid and the ask. Obviously, sellers want the highest price and the buyers want the lowest price trying to reconcile like the, you know, interest rate uncertainty. You know, we had the, the highest uh, interest rate increases in the shortest amount of time. I think on record, you know, when, when the CPI numbers were above 9%, now we're back at 3%. This is all within a 12 month period. So there's a lot of that gray area that I think is is getting absorbed into the market. Um, it, but you're right, it's very hard to pencil deals at 4% returns when interest rates at our all time lows. I mean, what's what you, you would have to bet that interest rates were going to remain at all time lows for a very long time. To, or your your rents were going to be going up above average over a short period of time, right? To compensate a return. Now, Miami is a little bit of an anomaly situation because we have so much foreign capital. We have palm trees. There's a lot of things that are attractive, attractive about investments in Miami, not just the, you know, return. I know that sounds funny, but Yes, people make decisions not based on economics sometimes in this market, which it makes it harder for guys like me who are very price sensitive and return driven uh, to compete. So you just wait or be patient. If, you know, you're not you're not obligated to do these deals, but you're right. The risk profile over the last couple of years was not favorable as it was prior. And, you know, just like everything, it goes kinds of ebbs and flows over time. I'm not seeing as nearly as many deals. I think there probably will. How you structure those deals, like you mentioned, does matter. Maybe not in the next month or in two months, but over time with you know a roof replacement or an adjustable rate mortgage that's shifting or an interest-only loan. You know, at, at the end of the day, you gotta you gotta have a productive asset. And usually people are more willing to throw in the towel when it's not productive because real estate does take a lot of work, you know, presuming it's not a triple net lease and you just kind of sit back um, and collect your, your checks. But the writ, the return profile is a lot different there. Yes. I do think there's probably going to be uh, a little bit more opportunity, you know, um, as we move forward and as the market kind of, kind of figures it itself out. But then again, uh, going in at a four cap and Nando knows this, it's not, you don't make that decision in a vacuum either. There's a lot of reasons why you could be buying on a four cap. And I have bought at very low caps. If you only look at the numbers, it doesn't tell you the complete story. There's oftentimes I've bought, 
you know, properties where rents were, you know, half of where they should be at market rate are able to, and I've structured deals with, and this is why relationships matter with my financial uh, banking partners that I'm basically like, listen, I know the rents are low, but give me six months and they'll be at market rate. Meaning they're like 40% other valued, 50% undervalued, the cap rate or the debt coverage doesn't make sense. And the bank would never lend on that on a stabilized asset. But I was like, let me show you. I put some money in escrow. I negotiate with the bank. And then sure enough, like in six months, my rates would be at market and they, they couldn't, they wouldn't believe me. They wouldn't, they wouldn't believe how, how I could identify that market, but it's market opportunity, except for the fact that you know your market. And that's really the edge. You gotta, there has to be a reason that you can compete in an advantageous way. Um, and, you know, just knowledge and knowing is a pretty good competitive advantage. I want to highlight what you just said, because it contradicts something that you said earlier. And I think it's super, super important for our listeners to hear. You said that you bought at a four cap and nobody believed anything, right? Nobody would have financed it. But the fact that you knew the market. So before you said price is the most important factor, which in this example, to me, it wasn't. It was your market knowledge. So I think for our listeners, market knowledge is actually the most important factor, because if you know your market well enough, then when you look at an asset where maybe the price isn't right, like in a four cap, you might in, in a four cap and maybe a six cap market, you might be saying, what the heck? But if you know your market and you know that you can yeah. bring that up to a six cap and if you don't buy it, that's a, a, a producing asset that you're not going to have in yeah. your portfolio. So I yeah, think that's uh, really in, interesting. In, in a way, it's not the, the two statements are not incongruent with each other. Right. Because it's 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 what is on face value. The price doesn't make sense. Right. But it is that when you combine the market knowledge, then you understand, well, in a very short period of time, I can make the numbers make sense. Right. But the second lesson here, which is one that a lot of new um, investors into multifamily, let's just say that they'll call us and they'll say, well, what kind of what kind of loan can I get from the bank? And I said, well, that is already a red flag for me. Right. Because you need to have those relationships. Right. You can't just go to a national bank and, and expect to get, a, you know, 75 percent loan to value, 80 percent loan to value on purchasing your first multifamily property. That this is the reason why banks always ask about the experience of the operator, because the banks see it as I'm not just lending you money. I'm in the deal with you. I am a partner in the deal for X percentage. And I want to make sure that the person operating this is not going to leave me with a hot potato and that I'm going to have to now take a depreciating asset that uh, is mismanaged and have to now invest all that time, energy and effort into managing it. Experience is an incredible component of your ability to, to get the right kind of leverage. The dynamics of the deal were complex, um, but I think that if you, you know, the, the experience factor allowed for for you to find opportunities where other people were kind of ignoring the opportunity because all they saw was difficulty, all they saw was complications. Yeah, I would say just to just to follow up with your 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 price um, inconsistency comment. I what I meant was apples to apples. If you're looking at a deal, obviously price matters. 
taking that one step further, I think that, you know, for example, I made the, the, the comment about significantly undervalued rents, like it, that is a function of price, right? So it, even the price was still uh, very low in comparison to market rates. However, it was not reflected with the current operations, right? You can, you can add value to multifamily. One, you can just get a good deal, right? Um, but usually you have to find a way to add value, one of which is through management, right? And sometimes management does not do a good enough job or don't know what the real estate rental, they're not painting the apartment walls to get an extra 200, whatever it is, that's what that's what I meant in terms of the, the price opportunity, having that 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 caveat. And I guess I used the wrong word. It shouldn't have been inconsistency. It was more something that I wanted to highlight to our listeners about the importance of knowing the market, because a low price in one market might not be a good deal, whereas a high price in another market might be a good deal. And we actually did an episode on that. So um, I, I, I apologize for using the word no, inconsistent. No, not at all, because no, you, you, <laughs> you, you, you engaged in a discussion that is important to have because a lot of people uh, you know, are not really understanding that difference and, and how that market expertise makes all the difference. Right. So I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your fractured condo deal because I I love it. But when you talk about multifamily, a lot of people don't think about fractured condos. And I actually sold the building with 18 fractured, uh, you know, 18 units in it. De same thing. Developer wanted to get out and. It was funny because we had I had a ton of multifamily investors call on it, but when they found out it wasn't the whole building, they all left. And the buyer that ended up buying it is killing it, and he's slowly buying up the rest of the condos in the building. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience with fractured condos? Because I think given yeah. your, your point about this market being a little bit more difficult, but with all the construction that's gone on lately, that might be an opportunity for yeah. some people somewhere down the road to get in. Yeah. So it was, again, it was uh, an opportunistic, what, you know, if you, the lead up to the the great recession was at least in Miami. I'm sure is taking place in other areas around the country, but a lot of these apartment buildings were getting bought up by investors. Uh, the investor or developer, whatever you want to call them, would then file the paperwork to convert the apartment to a condo, sell the condos at you know a way higher price than what a normal apartment building would go. For and you know, for a while, I think that worked. Um, he got stuck. I think he was doing some, ironically, in Miami, if you can believe it, some funny business, you know, some <laughs> uh, not improper things. Um, and I think he needed to either recapitalize with the bank or just wanted to get out so he didn't, you know, get caught on some other projects he was working on. He just like he got out of them. It, yeah, it ended up working very well for us. It was definitely a distressed situation where the developer left the buildings with, you know, open permits and uh, there was a lot to work through. Some of the units went into receivership because 
Obviously, it was just a hard time. A lot of people overpaid for their property, and then it wasn't worth uh, half of that on the high side after we went through kind of the, the downturn. For me, it, it definitely had to be, uh, uh, you know, a good good deal because there's, you know, I was the president of the associations, both of the associations, like just me alone, you know, me and the property manager, because the association, we outsourced that property management from the association side. We still managed our units, but uh, we basically got through it. You know, uh, it was kind of not an if, but when scenario where we put liens on the properties that the, on the on the units that weren't paying their association dues. And when they sold eventually you know, a year, two years, three years down the line, we recouped it. So it wasn't without pain, but like you said, uh, you're, you're operating on the verge of, um, what was that? The verge of scary. fear a little bit scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Only, only because it's uncertain. Um, a lot of that scariness kind of resolves itself. If you got a fantastic price, right. And you know, it's like, uh, so that helps. But yeah, it's scary in the terms of you don't know what's going to happen or how long it's going to take. It was distress. So, I, you know, in, in a fractured condo deal, if there's like distress, but yes, you can make, you know, you can make uh, good investment decisions. And again, like what you said is if most investors are going the other way, that should at least make you think of taking a second look. Because where everyone's going is kind of not where you want to be, because usually that means that there's less opportunity. At least that's how my mind thinks, you know, contrarian. Some of the deals in the in this harder market, you kind of look at the stuff. Not that means that you're 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 biting off everything that you see that's uh, chaotic or uh, people are shying away from. But uh, at least you should kind of like look into it a little bit more. And I think that. That, that's the point you're trying to make is a lot of investors just walk away from it, even though it might be a high yield. Um, usually they're walking away for a reason, right? There, there's certain reasons like they don't want to be involved with the, an association or manage with so many owners. So there are some underlining reasons for that. However, if you reconcile that with your opportunity cost and uh, if it's really as bad as it sounds, you know, you can you can make a good deal. And just like what your example is, it sounds like that investor made the right decision. Great. Thank you. Sure. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing your time. I mean, we could go on and have this conversation for hours and hours, I think, but we want to be respectful of your time. I don't know if Fernando prepped you with our, he did, and I can tell by the look on his face um, that we usually, we usually do a fun stat um, at the end. So I don't know if you have any statistics from experience or any number or anything that you want to throw out there. It doesn't have to be related to real estate or multifamily. It could be anything. And if you need some time, I'm letting like I'm dragging this out to give you time for your wheels oh, to click. Okay, and if so, not, if not, we can always let Fernando go first and then 
my my fun stat comes from the bowtie uh, economist that we've we've quoted often here. You know, he says uh, misguided markets, financial markets are worthless in predicting future events. And so he says in mid January, Wall Street was predicting that the Fed would cut the fund rate by a total of 170 basis points in 2024, almost seven quarter point cuts, even though the Fed was suggesting three by February 1st, markets were predicting five quarter point cuts by early February four and now three and a half. This dramatic reversal shows how markets generally overreact. And that is that is so true as everybody has been expecting some kind of cut in March. And now it doesn't look like uh, that's that's going to be the case. So um, I just this is from Multifamily Dive and it's about a year old, but it says that the U.S. needs 4.3 million more apartments by 2035, that approximately 266,000 new units need to be built each year to meet the demand for more. And the reason I throw that out there is because we talk a lot about perspective and being careful with the news and and giving it too much um, weight when you have investment goals, because the news right now is saying apartments have been overbuilt, rents are coming down, you know, they're kind of putting that fear factor out there. And the reality is, is as affordability shows you, even though rents might be coming down in a lot of areas, they're still unaffordable for the majority of the people working in the area. And the only way to really offset that hike in pricing and the high rents is by supplying more units. So, yeah, yeah, and I, I would agree with that. I, I would that one of the stat uh, and I'll, I'll bring it up. It's, it's where I recently heard, uh, you know, with with both of you, actually, is that I, I was surprised to learn that this over the last year, I believe it's the lowest transaction volume. Um, even lower than during the financial crash. That was that surprised me over the last, I think, I think ever the lowest transaction value that they had on record, if I got that stat correctly. Um, I do think that the overall thesis of affordability is important um, just for the sustainability and the success of our country. Um, I do think that the state of Florida is doing something about that with the Live Local Act but other states also need to, we really need to get involved with uh, our, let's take a look at zoning and how to increase density and and provide more housing opportunities because it's it's a simple supply and demand. And the re- there's a recent Wall Street Journal article that touched on rents coming down, but rents are really only coming down in the high end new uh you know, new construction developments where they're only catering to a certain you know, subset of renters anyway. So it still leaves out a lot of people. Um, costs are rising very fast. Um, and so that it's a, it's a huge opportunity, I think, moving forward for any new investor um, or existing investor to kind of hone in on how to bring stuff that's more affordable to the market. And it, it is a challenge. Awesome. See, you came up with a fun fact. <laughs> it was better than both of us. Yeah, yeah, it was great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nate. We really appreciate you being with us. No and problem. I know the listeners fun. are going to get a lot out of this episode. And thanks so much for sharing and being so open with your appreciate experience. It. And shout out to Melissa. Thank you, Korn. guys. 
and, uh, and 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 your two boys and and your daughter Abby, yep. who I know is running the show in that household. Oh yeah, oh yeah, this is true. God bless this you guys. This is true. Have a great right. day. Thank you, buddy. Nice to talk. You got it. Bye bye.